morning. Welcome to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my guest is Troy Timmons. He is a psychotherapist out of Texas who specializes in child abuse. Yes, you heard me say that. We are going to talk about child abuse today. We're not going to delve into the Penn State or Catholic scandals, per se. This is not a hit show to... Uh, uh, take out the um, our frustrations or whatever you want on those two institutions. This is going to be educational. We're going to learn more about the victims, how they're chosen, how they're groomed, what happens to them. We're going to learn about the pedophiles themselves, what makes them tick. And we're going to learn what we can do as a society to stop this madness. Uh, Troy, welcome to the show, and I appreciate you coming on. Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. No problem. Listen, I want to start off with real quick. Give us your background. It's kind of unique. You've got a a uh, law enforcement background prior to becoming a psychotherapist. So can, you, can you kind of walk us through this? Sure. Yeah. You know, it's been uh, it's hard to believe now, but it's, it's about 22 years ago I started um, as a, right out of undergraduate as a probation officer, and so that's where I was first, uh, you know, introduced to. Um, to sexual offenders and and uh, sort of the criminal justice system, and then uh, later returned to graduate school and and have now been in um, in private practice treating both survivors and perpetrators of abuse for uh, for several years. Definitely a unique take you're going to bring to the situation. I did forget to mention, and actually one of the most important things here, you have written the book, "Mommy, Please Read This." Um, can you give me, is there a little inspiration here, a particular case you worked on, or just uh, your years of being involved in this? It was time to tell a story. Well, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. The, uh, the, the book, the concept for the book, for Mommy, Please Read This, actually came. I was working with a, a family that had adopted two little girls who had been sexually abused, and um, I had given the the adoptive mother a, a really a wonderful resource, but it was a book that was very heavy with research and and um, you know just kind of difficult to get through, and it was you know really big. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget the mother came back a couple of weeks later, and I said, "Well, you know, can we talk about some of the the book that I'd given you?" And, and she made this comment. She said, "Man, I, I just couldn't get into it. Hmm. It was too heavy. It was too hard. It's you know, it's too statistical. It's too, it's just too much." And so that was the idea. Uh, with mommy, please read this. Was to put together a book that is uh, easy to read. It's not burdensome with statistics and research, but it's tied together with stories of hope and healing. And uh, I think that you know, I think uh, I hope that that's what we've accomplished. Statistics. Uh, I kind of want to start off with that. I want to uh, uh, kind of get the audience to understand that what we're going to talk about today is not maybe what they think a child molester is. As you and I talked about the other day on the phone, it's not the guy per se hiding behind the schoolyard in a trench coat, waiting to you know to to look at the kids and get off on that. It's more more sinister than that. More disgusting in a lot of ways. It can be close family friends, family members, uh, members of the community that are in high standing and have some power. But statistically, now I've read different ones over the years, one in four, one in five, one in six, maybe even more children have been molested by the time they're 18. How accurate is that? Well, it seems to be pretty accurate. When we, when we look at the the research, um, what's called meta-analysis studies of studies that look at, um, you know, the frequency of abuse in the United States, then probably the number that listeners will hear the most 
often quoted is one out of four girls sexually abused before age 18 and one out of six boys. Uh, a few other, I think, noteworthy um, numbers that, to keep in mind is the fact that the vast majority of sexual abuse cases are thought to never be reported. In fact, um, you know, the cases that you and I hear about or that we read about in the news or that touch families are, represent probably around 15%, of 15, 1-5% of the you know, the, the abuse cases that are occurring. And then the last number that I, I think uh, is truly overwhelming is the fact that uh, 90% of offenders and these types of offenses are committed by someone that the child has a previous existing relationship with. And that's that's the part I think people who are quasi-understanding this don't get. It Again, it, as you said, and we talked about this, it would be easier for everyone involved if it was the trench coat guy. Oh, yeah, much easier. Much easier for law enforcement, much easier for parents and, uh, and uh, uh, responsible adults and so forth to identify the problem. But this isn't the case. This is people, their teachers, their coaches, their clergymen, their, their, their parents, for God's sake, their relatives um, in a family. How often uh, is this a generational thing? Um, brother molested sister. Uh, son of sister ends up molesting another family member. And so on down the line. Is this, is, is this something that stays within the family dynamics a lot of times? You know, anecdotally, you know, interviewing hundreds and hundreds of admitted child molesters, I can tell you that there does seem to be something too, uh, you know, that within the family and from generation to generation, particularly with incest offenders. Um, I think, though, it's fair to point out that, you know, one old idea was that people who molest do this because, in fact, they were abused, and that just doesn't appear to be the case at okay, all. Okay, so let's look. I want to step back and and, and have you re-say that because. I believe that up until I started doing a little bit more research the last couple days. So say that again, please. Yeah, well, the the old idea was that offenders or child molesters do this. They molest because they were victims of abuse themselves. And the the research suggests that probably less than half of the offenders were abused themselves, probably close to around 45%. I think that's so important, and here's why. Uh, First, it's just horribly unfair. Um, to suggest that uh, that if a person has uh, been a survivor of sexual abuse, that somehow we're kind of just waiting for them to act out. The reality is the majority of the victims in the United States appear to be girls or female, and the majority of the offenders are male. So if that were true, I think we'd see a a much greater incidence of female offenders. Um, But, you know, for anyone listening to to our visit this morning, I, I I really want them to take that to heart because... Um, being an abuse survivor is not a natural progression to being an offender. And I want to make sure that, again, the public understands that my listening audience gets this. It is not what we've been told or what we have learned over the years about child pedophiles. Again, as uh, as uh, Troy is telling us, just because a person has been abused is not an automatic pass that they're going to abuse themselves and that uh, we should have some sort of extra compassion there. Doesn't seem to be the case, and, and I like that we got that out immediately. 
Troy, we're talking here one in four, one in six, uh, numbers I can't fathom, which means to me over my 44 years of life, all the people I've encountered, probably people I know right now, have been molested. I, I, I've met these people without even knowing it. Yeah. And, and and to me, it's amazing because we run and we do uh, uh, all kinds of fundraisers for cancer and, and things and different that. And one out of 200 kids have autism. Not that that's, you know, uh, not a worthy cause. But one in 200, there's a big difference between, you know, one in four and one in 200. Yeah. What... I'm going to step back for this one because this is, and I pretty much know the answer, but I think it's kind of, kind of curious to, to actually still ask it. Why mostly men? Why do you think? Is there something just innate to the genetics of how women are through through evolution, or is there a deeper reason, or maybe just that's the way it is? Man, I, I wish I had had the answer that I could just you know spout off categorically but I think there's there's a bit of a mystery I think that when you look at the sort of from a sociological uh, viewpoint uh, particularly in our society and you know, we we really are a sexually charged um, you know atmosphere and we kind of want to have it both ways uh, we promote all kinds of things through um, um, from subtle to obvious um, you know sexual inferences um, but then we kind of have this other standard and it's, it's you know when you think about some of the ad campaigns that that uh, we see involving teens and um, you know they're how they're portrayed um, so we it's a it's a real I think a difficult position that that we're all in because we're as a community you know just eating sex 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 up in all kinds of ways and then you know with we look at pornography use for example uh billion dollar industry um and so there are competing ideas on you know why are people doing this um the first point i think i would like to make on that is a person has to want to do this, and uh, you know, to, I don't want anybody to be fooled into the idea that any one thing is making you know someone molest. Um, there, there are actually quite a few variables that go into this, but I don't think that that any any one issue is going to is going to be pointed at and say, okay, this is the reason that people are molested. Is there a predisposition to it? You think when you're dealing because you've dealt with actual pedophiles are they wired differently is there a reason they find an eight-year-old boy or girl sexually attractive is it is it more of a power trip because they can control a situation mm -hmm. well for some what we would call true pedophiles or fixated pedophiles um, their predominant sexual interest seems to be that that prepubescent child, the absence of sexual maturity, the absence of sexual form. So much like an appropriate adult might be interested in a tall partner or, or dark-haired or light, whatever, the true fixated pedophile simply um, is predominantly sexually aroused or interested by that absence of sexual maturity. And then other reasons for the person to be motivated, <clears throat> excuse me, to molest, sometimes it is a power thing. Uh, sometimes it's not really much about sex. I think that the, the, the huge issue that stands out when you compare the offender population to the normal population, it's these guys think differently. That's what I was going to say, yeah. 
They really do. They they are able to, you know, we all use what we call thinking errors. We tell ourselves all kinds of crazy stuff to, you know, justify or rationalize a, a poor decision. But offenders take this to a level that is... Um, is is particularly uh, skilled. Do they think, in particular, men? We're going to stay on this topic for the moment. With with more, more so men and 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 boys in situations such as that. Do they think what they're doing is right, and that the rest of us are wrong in our assumptions that it's wrong? That somehow they're giving love and attention to the victim. Uh, again, that it's not wrongs. So if you look back in history and go back to you know the Greek and Roman days, it wasn't uncommon for young men to take up with older men uh, in, in in sexual ways. So it, it has been there throughout history. What what makes it what it is now? Well, there's certainly a subset in the offender population that that is vocal about, you know, you guys just don't understand. I, I remember interviewing a, an offender who basically said, if society ever, you know, could evolve to the point where they just understand how I think and how men like me think, um, then, you know, we would be better off. But I would say that's a small number. Okay. Um, the vast majority um, know inherently that it's wrong. And the evidence of that is that this, these types of behaviors are, are carried out in secret. And, you know, just think about traditional human behavior. We don't try to hide things that we uh, are not concerned with um, or worried about. So, so you believe then, again, that most of them know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's what I want to do and, you know, the hell with everybody else and what the rules say and I really don't care what I end up doing to a child. But, but again, I'm going to kind of rephrase it then again. Do, do they believe in any way, though, is some of them that, again, maybe some do, but that there's an expression of love here? I mean, it, can they rationalize themselves to that point? Yes, absolutely. And that's where those thinking errors, you know, just really stand out. And so interviewing offenders, you'll hear them say things like, you know, it wasn't really abuse because I really do care about this child. Or um, I was simply teaching the child something that they need to know. Or this was simply an expression of my affection for the child. And so you're right on. They, they rationalize and they justify or they will minimize this to a point where in their mind, it's permissible. It's okay to, to move forward. And that's something we're going to touch on as we go into the break here. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to Lifeline Edited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today, my guest is Troy Timmons. He is a psychotherapist who specializes in child abuse. Be back in a few moments. Matt from Rivers Monroe. Check out Soundstage on WCHE 1520 Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. with new host Mike, my good friend from Rivers Monroe, as he talks with upcoming local artists and musicians. Again, that's Soundstage every Thursday at 4 p.m. with Mike Monroe on WCHE 1520 a.m., the talk of Chester County. But is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? So is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? Is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? Is it time for dogs to have their own social network of their own? Is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? Good question. 
question. Man, you ask good questions. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That's a great question. First time I've heard it on about 15 interviews. I'm very thankful to ask that. If you're looking for the latest in fashion, beauty, health, lifestyle, and entertainment with unique and interesting guests and the questions that you're always wondering that no one asks, then tune into The Brin Project every Wednesday at 12.15 and every Saturday at 12. And you can stay updated with the show at facebook.com forward slash The Brin Project. That's The Brin Project on Wednesdays at 12.15 and Saturdays at 12. Hi, everybody. I'm Summer Sanders, Olympic gold medal swimmer, and you're listening to WCHE 1520 AM. Welcome back to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Troy Timmons. He is a psychotherapist out of, Houston, out of Texas. Excuse me, I forgot to say what part of Texas. Uh, he specializes in child abuse, and he has written the book, Mommy, Please Read This. Troy, can you tell us where to get a copy? I uh, yeah, two places, uh, TroyKimmons.com and uh, Amazon.com. And uh, well, those are the two primary places. I've, I've noticed recently it's, it's showing up in some other, uh, you know, online uh, book, book shops and stuff. But those are the two. It's hard for you to do this kind of work. I mean, I mean, obviously you've put yourself in the position to do so, so you, you, you care and, and it's, it's a passion for you to help people. But is it, is it draining? Is it hard? Do you, do you take it home with you at the end of the day if you ever get a chance to escape it? Well, you know, I think um, all counselors, therapists, people in the helping profession, um, you know, there's, there's a very real concept called vicarious trauma or secondary trauma. And, uh, you know, I think it's a balancing act. And, uh, you know, part of the decision for me to work with both survivors and offenders um, is, is uh, uh, an effort to to seek balance. Um, I, I don't know that I would ever only work with offenders, um, uh, but for me, it, the, the balance seems to work. Let's concentrate on the victims here for a little bit as we start to kind of get into the uh, the heavy part of the situation here of the conversation. What is a typical child that, that, that we should look for that might be offended? What age might it start at? What characteristics does that child have that's drawing this predator into them? Can you kind of give us uh, some of the things that we, you know, that, that, that a, you know, that a child unfortunately is giving off these signals and what signals they are? Yeah, the, uh, you know, offenders, first and foremost, seek out a child that they uh, perceive to be, for whatever reason, more vulnerable. And so when you look at you know, characteristic, where do those children that are at higher risk come from, then, uh, you know, there are, there are some areas that stand out. Single parent families, for example, uh, you know, where, where that child, um, you know, has a very real need for, uh, you know, another grown up in their life. Uh, we know that families where there's a great deal of, uh, of transient uh, folks coming in and out of the home. Uh, so, you know, like, for example, in communities where in the home there's drug use and and there are a lot of people coming in and out of that home with no real attachment to the child. Um, 
the, the thing that stands out to me in interviewing offenders when asked, what is it exactly that you're looking for? A time and time again, I heard child molesters saying, I'm looking for that child that is a little less assertive. This child who, uh, you know, maybe isn't so quick to say no, and um, because they're, they're going to try to exploit that. They're going and they're, to, they're not going to be a problem. Yeah, it's not going to be a problem. They could be more intimidated, correct? Yeah, and that's actually good news for us to know that because we can teach assertiveness. You know, we as parents and responsible grown-ups, we can teach and model assertiveness. And, and, and really, for me, it just flips the whole model because the reality is we're horrible at picking who the bad guy is before they act out. Oh, it's you know, not we, like what we see on TV or in movies. It's not black and white, who's bad, who's good. It, there's so much gray involved that you, you lose it before you even start looking for it. Exactly. And since we're, we just can't, we've failed miserably at predicting who is a molester and who is not, uh, then I think the idea we shift it to we, we learn from what they have taught us on what they're looking for and what traits they're looking for. And now the idea is to make children less of a target to those, those offenders. Why, why don't children talk about it? Why don't they go to a trusted adult a lot of times and, and say, hey, you know, I'm being inappropriate touched or, or, or there's something going on here that doesn't feel right? Is it, is it because of the characteristics we just talked about? The, the, the predators looking for the shy, withdrawn kid, looking for someone obviously who's not going to give a problem? Or does it go deeper? Does, this, does the child somehow feel that he or she deserves this or they just don't understand it? Well, oftentimes I don't understand. So with younger children, um, you know, they they may not even be aware that, that what is occurring is abuse because it's often couched as, as games or just an expression of affection. Um, but I think the core of your your the answer to the core of that question is is that the reason most people don't tell is that the the abuse is a product of an extensive grooming process and a very real relationship that that child has with the offender and the offender has with with the child. Now, that sounds a little strange, okay, but grooming, this, this process that offenders go through to gain the trust and the confidence of the child is very powerful. And it's interesting that a lot of times, you know, we would expect... For example, a child to be afraid, um, upset with, um, never want to speak to that offender again. But in fact, it's, it, it's oftentimes just the opposite. The, there is a very real relationship that took place, but the, the catch is for the offender, it was, you know, it was all a, a charade. All a sexual act. All the way to take advantage of a young, innocent person who's trusting. That brings me to family members and incest and things we never talk about and, and we are talking about now. Uh, God, how, again, how does that run in the family dynamics, Troy? I mean, do you, have you seen in your practice uh, one sister molested by her father and then the other sister and then maybe a third on down the line? Or you know, have you seen it in, that, in the family like that? It just kind of runs that course? Uh, we have. I've, I've seen it, what you're describing there, and then probably more typical in my experience, um, which certainly other therapists may have different um, accounts, has been the offender who will primarily focus on uh, one of the children. 
uh, as I think back over those types of cases I've worked with, uh, that seems seems to be the case. When you look at, you know, if you're asking who are the offenders, and we know that 90% are family members or friends of the family, a person who has a relationship with the child, then there are, there are some some you know, individuals that really stand out in the research. Now, let me say up front, if I may, mm-hmm. thank God for wonderful step-parents. If you're blessed to have a step-parent in your life, like so many of us have been, that are appropriate, well, I don't want to ever come across as bash as step-parents. Thank you. But when we go to the research and we look at, you know, on this issue, who stands out as the offenders? Um, unfortunately, um, stepfathers are, are right up there at the top of the list. Uncles, uh, neighbors, um, adolescent boys. Uh, you Is know, this because they're able to bring themselves into the relationship with the mother of the child? If the mother's single, there's not a man around the house, it leads to this open gate, so to speak? I think there may be something to that. And then there's this interesting little comment that that incest offenders oftentimes make. For example, uh, if I'm interviewing an incest offender, I might say, okay, so you're admitting to uh, molesting your step, for example, daughter. And they'll say yes. And I'll say, okay, and I understand you also have a biological daughter of the same age. Did you ever molest that child? And with with a, a true sense of disgust in their voice, they will say, oh, my gosh, no, that's my blood. Now, you and I hear that, and the listener hears that, and you think, that's crazy, <laughs> because it's a child. Yep. A child's a child, and that's just ludicrous. But in those offenders' minds... As we discussed earlier, those thinking errors are profound, and so they justify that behavior by saying, well, this isn't, see, what they're doing is they're minimizing or marginalizing that relationship. This isn't really my child, so it's a little different. It's just their play toy. Yeah. yeah, it's, it, yeah. it's nothing, to them, the word incest freaks them out because it's blood relations, but if it's someone else's kid, if it's my stepdaughter, well, she's sexualized because I don't, I don't have blood with her. Yeah, they distance themselves psychologically from that. And I, I can't, man, so many occasions that I've heard offenders say exactly that. You know, I hate to, you know, it, 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 it comes down and we're, and I would be remiss to not speak and say this. You get to the single parent situation again, and again, statistically, statistics bear itself out once more. If there's not a father in the house or even a good role model father figure, Unfortunately, this tends to leave the gates open for the, for predators like this and, and, and other situations to occur as children uh, grow up. Uh, Troy, who comes forward more often, males or females? Uh, females. Females. About how, is there a, a time frame you would say on average, does a, does a woman wait until she's in her 20s or older to tell, and, and when would a boy might tell, if he ever does? Yeah. Well, you know, back to uh, something you mentioned earlier, most mm-hmm. people never tell uh, for reasons of feeling responsible or, or worried about how the, the disclosure will, will affect the abuse. Um, you know, when you look at the, the median or the middle age of, of victims and survivors, about nine and a half is, is the number that comes up for boys and girls. One of the mistakes, however, that we make on when people tell is to somehow relate that to whether or not the allegation is true. And so first, you know, we want to remind ourselves that most people never tell. And then whether a person tells 
sooner rather than later or later, it doesn't have any real bearing on whether or not this is true. I think the problem is we have an idea that, uh, you know, if, if something like this is occurring, the child will come running from the room as if they're on fire. And that's, that's not the case. Now, I've always questioned this in my own mind, and, 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 and I think the reason is because the way I was raised, I was raised to be aggressive, assertive, and, uh, you know, think for myself. And, and trying to understand a boy of 12 or 13 or maybe 10, and he starts to get molested, and it goes on until he's 16, 17, sometimes older, at isn't there somewhere in there that the the victim is realizing, hey, this isn't the correct, I mean, there's, there's something seriously wrong here? Or are they also in denial, or are they so closed off by the predator? Well, it's, you know, oftentimes it's a combination of those things. Uh, you know, for that child who, at a young age, doesn't, you know, isn't really privy to the idea that this is in fact abuse it's it's couched as an expression of the relationship and as they get older they start to to you know comparing their activities to their friends and wow well that, i don't hear anybody else you know experiencing this and then perhaps they move into middle adolescence and they start to to have a very real sense of you know this is inappropriate but for example when that let's your example i believe was a boy and let's assume that he's molested by a male there are several reasons that that child doesn't want to tell one is the homosexual taboo correct uh, many uh, many offenders will, will say to that that boy you know you don't want to tell anybody about what we do because you'll get in trouble you're part of this too and secondly you don't want people to think that you're homosexual control aspect of it joy we're going to on to another break. You're listening to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Troy Timmons. He is the author of Mommy, Please Read This. He is a psychotherapist who specializes in child abuse. He is out of Texas. We'll be back in a few moments. Hi, I'm Ann Murphy, Certified Holistic Health Coach. Have you ever wished you had a personal owner's manual? Check out my show, New Approach Wellness. We'll talk about how food changes everything, thoughts, feelings, actions, and outcomes. We'll learn about the food mood connection, cravings, and how to connect your mind with your body. So join me here at WCHG on Wednesdays at 4 and learn how to tune into your personal owner's manual. I'm feeling sexy and free. The results are in, and you can experience the thrill of experiencing Kyle's Auto Tag and Insurance, award-winning service for all your auto tag needs or the agony of going anywhere else. Kyle's has been voted the gold medal winner as the top auto tag and notary service in Chester County in the Daily Local Newsreader's Choice Award poll. With Kyle's 30 years of experience and his connection with the Pennsylvania Department of Motor Vehicles, he can do it all. Cars, trucks, small trailers, or even a fleet of corporate trucks. Kyle or his manager, John, will make it a smooth transaction. Need something notarized? Kyle can do that too. Kyle has two locations to serve you. The original location in the Gay Street Plaza in Westchester and their newest location in Thorndale at 57 North Bailey Road near Rafiti's Restaurant and Brenda's Back Shop behind Kmart. And Kyle's is always less than the big wig. If you let your auto registration expire, Kyle can make you legal on the spot. Hey, you're 
Kyle's Auto Tag and Insurance because you're entitled to great service. DAMatters.com is your source for news and reporter blogs from Harrisburg. Stay informed on the issues and the people who are making a difference in Pennsylvania. DAMatters.com is also your backstage pass to the inner workings of state government as you can interact with Governor Tom Corbett through our monthly Ask the Governor program. Visit the site today to enter your question for the governor. I'm Governor Tom Corbett. Please join me on Radio PA and PAMatters.com for a discussion on the issues facing our Commonwealth. Submit your questions or comment today. Then check back regularly for exclusive video clips featuring Governor Corbett addressing your concerns. Well, Gary, it's one of the things that I've been talking about, I think, Matt. You Chris, I'm sorry to hear that you feel that way. I'll tell you, if she thinks it's fraud, please have her contact the Inspector General's office in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. We'd be happy to take a look at that. There you go, Ruth. That's a good avenue for it. Uh, it comes to me for review. If, uh, if they don't get three, it doesn't come to me for review. Okay, so Sergio, there you go. It's a long process, but at least now you know where to get started. That's PA matters.com. Hi, I'm Terry Reeves from Battleground, and you are listening to WCHE 1520 AM. Welcome back to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Troy Timmons. He has written the book, Mommy, Please Read This. He is a psychotherapist who specializes in child abuse. Before I get back to my interview with Troy, a little quick background there on uh, Jamie's Got a Gun by Arrowsmith. Written in 1989, it is about a father who is molesting his teenage daughter. The song went to number one in late 89, early 90, and was voted number 37 of the top 100 greatest songs of the 1980s. A depressing song, yes it is, but one of the few times... And I think Troy can help me with this And when I throw it back to him. Growing up, you didn't hear much about this. It wasn't much in the media. Every so often, it would be a sensationalized story. I can think of a, a daycare center in California where a bunch of kindergartners made accusations to the owners of, about the owners of the place. But one thing that stands out in my mind uh, was in 1984, Ted Danson played a father who molests his daughter, and it was called Something About Amelia. Are you familiar with that uh, movie there, Troy? No, vaguely. I'm trying to remember that, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was one of the first things one of the first thing I ever saw. I was 16, related uh, to child abuse. It was an ABC, one of those ABC specials. But, you know, as time has gone on, we, of course, are seeing more people uh, coming out and telling their story, which I, I hope and I believe is helping other people and hopefully maybe stopping some of this, at least curtailing it. Um, getting to the pedophiles, which is the fascinating aspect of this whole thing, actually. What is it, if you had to give me a typical pedophile, if there is such a thing, what would we be looking at? A middle-aged white guy, blue-collar, white-collar, athletic, nerd? Is there any kind of typical? Um. Well, okay, you know, Gene Abel, Dr. Gene Abel, who's based out of Atlanta, has probably done some of the, the largest um, research on this issue. And, and so when we look at the demographics of the typical offender or molester here in, in uh, the United States, then, you know, if you said, what's the average? And I would say, you know, probably mid-30s. Um, Average, 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 average income, average education, was married or is, is employed, 
um, you know, just there's nothing literally that stands out about these these offenders other than their deviant, inappropriate sexual behavior. And that's why it's so incredibly hard to pick who they are before they act out. Now, you know, there are some, some tells, I would say, uh, that, you know, some, some signs that are very subtle. And in hindsight, they really jump out at us. Uh, but the reason for that is, you know, for every bad guy, that is, you know, manipulating himself into, for example, an activity or a volunteer activity with children. There are dozens who are just appropriate and good people that are in that same role. And, and so that, that complicates things right there. The other thing that makes it very hard for us to identify who offenders are is because they tend to be our friends and our family members, we see ourselves in them. And and therein we you know it's kind of a boy. Uh, it's very uncomfortable to imagine that somebody that I know, love, care, and trust, who probably in a lot of ways is like me, could be uh, you know capable of doing something as horrible as this. So it's basically almost the ultimate act of denial. Yeah, it is. And you know uh, I've done lots and lots of interviews over the last few months, uh, in part to the to the. Penn State troubles and the, the Syracuse troubles in those cases. And, you know, one of the questions is, is this a typical type of case? And, and I would say absolutely, with the exception of, you know, the media attention. Uh, this is a person that's trusted, known, respected, and, and, and very well-reasoned, reasonable people are scratching their heads going, could this be true? Uh, because it's, it's the ultimate deception. Well, let's, uh, let's look at the wife. Of uh, uh, someone who, who's a molester, child molester, and, and I have to give the example of uh, Jerry Sandusky's wife. I mean, she lived with him for the last forty years. He had kids parading in and out. He ran the Second Mile Club. Is the wife in complete denial, or is this guy or any predator that good at at hiding it, or are they just so confident that they don't care? It's like you know, you're not going to get me because that's because I use my confidence to throw you off. Mm -hmm. You know, my my guess would be that it's it's a bit of both. That it's a it's it's one part. I desperately don't want this to be true because I really do trust and care and love about you know this person, um, and then uh, also being deceived um, like the rest of us. Uh, you know, there used to be in psychology and psychiatry the idea that there really are no family secrets. But, uh, you know, I just, uh, that's not been my experience. I've met a lot of wives and girlfriends and family members of the offender who I really believe uh, were as shocked as, as the rest of us. I believe that, too, because these guys are the ultimate manipulators, aren't they? They, they really are. It's uncanny. Um, you know how how quickly they can establish rapport uh, with a child and and with with the caregivers. But uh, but, but is it really that. though, Troy? If you, in my mind, if you step back and think about it for a second, in particular with I'm going to go back to that single mother thing again, and I hate to harp on it, but it is a statistic that that's glaring. Isn't the mother sometimes vulnerable? She you know she's looking for a partner, looking for that man figure maybe for her son. Uh, the child itself is missing something, love or compassion along the way, and it's just the perfect storm of circumstances? 
Yeah, I think that that's that's all too too often exactly the case. I remember a trial years ago that I was involved with where um, you know the the mother had had twin sons and they had both been abused um, you know for for a rather long period of time by by a man. Um, and, and she described him at, in her testimony as at one point feeling he was like an angel sent from heaven because he always seemed to do the right thing. He was always there. He he had an interest in her children that was, um, you know, that was above reproach. Uh, but yeah. as it turned out, it was all, you know, it was all a ruse. It was all part of the game just to get what he wants. Yeah. And it, again, I can't say the word disgusting enough. Grooming. Give us an idea of grooming. What what are we looking at when a child is being groomed? What is the predator doing? How is he setting this in motion? Well, grooming is is uh, the cornerstone. It's the foundation for the vast majority of abusive, you know, sexual acts against children. Uh, you know, a, a percentage involves force. That that usually goes to those small number of cases that are strangers. Um, a percentage will involve threats of force, but the vast majority, 80 um, percent, are going to involve this process called grooming, which is an extensive effort to build trust, rapport, and relationship with the child. Now, I asked, and, uh, and Mommy, please read this. Uh, I kind of went into this, this part of the book thinking, if I was going to rob a bank, who would I want to talk to? Well, obviously bank robbers. And so we went into the project asking offenders, what exactly do you do so well to, to get a kid and their family in position to abuse them? And, John, here's what they said. They said, first and foremost, I listen to the child. Yeah. Listen. Spend spend time with them. Secondly, spend time with the child, and then three, pick the least assertive child. And I can tell you, out of the hundreds of interviews I've done, listen to the child and spend time with the child is present in almost all of those. Because you're showing them attention, the attention they're not getting. You're coming down to their level, but you still have an upper hand because you're an authority figure, and to the child. It's almost a gift to have an adult pay that much attention to them when it usually doesn't happen. Yeah, I asked an offender, uh, you know, true fixated pedophile, what would you say to parents if, if, you had, if you had their attention for five minutes? And it, it just gives me chills because I know it's history. But he said, parents need to understand, if you don't want to spend time with your kids, I will. Say that again? I, I, want, I want it to be heard again because I know exactly what you said, but I want to be heard one more time. Yeah, this offender, fixated pedophile, has abused children for, for many, many years, was asked, what do parents need to know? And he said, parents need to understand that if they're not listening to their child, I will. If they're not spending time with their child, I will. And that, you know, it's still to this day, it just kind of spooks me to, to think back on that because I know this guy's history. But they're really giving us the trade secret, aren't they? Yeah. They really are telling us this is what we exploit. And this is why it's important for this interview to be, to be heard, in, in my opinion, because it's not the trench coat guy that we're thinking we're protecting our kids from. It's not. Yeah. It's the person that might be closest to us or the most respected person in the child's life outside of the parents. It could be this, the teacher, the coach, 
the the neighbor down the street that throws the football with the kids, you know, after school. It's not the trench coat person 90% of the time. And we're going to have to roll into another break here, and I hate to be cut off on that one, but it's not your fault, Brent. We're talking to Troy Timmons. He is the author of Mommy, Please Read This. He is a psychotherapist out of Texas who specializes in child abuse, and we'll be back in a few moments. The Habitat for Humanity Restore has opened their second location at 345 Scarlet Road in Kennett Square in the former Acme Building in the new Garden Shopping Center on the old Baltimore Pike. They're accepting donations of gently used cabinetry, furniture, appliances, and clothing for resale to the community. So help the new Habitat fill their stores so they can continue to build affordable housing in Chester County. Habitat will accept donations Tuesday through Saturday from 9 to 3. It's Matt from Rivers Monroe. Check out Soundstage on WCHE 1520 Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. with new host Mike, my good friend from Rivers Monroe, as he talks with upcoming local artists and musicians. Again, that's Soundstage every Thursday at 4 p.m. with Mike Monroe on WCHE 1520 AM, the talk of Chester County. But is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? So is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? Is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? Is it time for dogs to have their own social network of their own? Is it time for dogs to have a social network of their own? Good question. Man, you ask good questions. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. That's a great question. First time I've heard it on about 15 interviews. I'm very thankful to ask that. If you're looking for the latest in fashion, beauty, health, lifestyle, and entertainment with unique and interesting guests and the questions that you're always wondering that no one asks, then tune into The Brin Project every Wednesday at 12.15 and every Saturday at 12. And you can stay updated with the show at facebook.com forward slash The Brin Project. That's The Brin Project on Wednesdays at 12.15 and Saturdays at 12. Hi, I'm Monica Potter from the hit TV show Parenthood and you're listening to WCHE 1520 AM. It <laughs> didn't take. Oh, that's, I'll get it you're gonna get it working. We'll take it. We'll come back for a commercial spot later on to do that one. Again, you're back. You're back to life unedited. I'm sorry about that. It was a good clip. We're trying to run here um, on a movie that's called Where the Heart Is. But we'll get back to that after we keep moving on an interview here with Troy. Troy, when when you see a child that comes in, how bad is it? I mean, what, what are we looking at? What are the long-term damages here? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, children are amazingly resilient, and so everybody's a little different. For some people, um, you know, the trauma of, of, of sexual abuse uh, is different than others. Research suggests that perhaps a third of those uh, survivors have no observable symptoms, but let me, you know, Chloe Madonis, a wonderful American therapist, a family systems therapist, said years ago, sexual abuse is an assault on the soul, that it transcends the physical, and so I always caution people to, you know, be careful. I think on this issue, um, nobody gets out, you know, completely free of 
of consequence. And uh, but if you look at research on you know what do survivors tell us that they struggle with, then certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, several things stand out. We know that comparing a child who has been sexually abused to a child who has not, that abused child experiences just more of all the bad stuff: anxiety, depression, relationship problems, um, girls, unplanned pregnancies. Um, the, the, the divorce rate tends to be higher. Intimacy issues tend to be, um, you know, more profound. Uh, so comparing abuse to non-abuse, there there really are measurable measurable differences. We're looking at again long-term, lifelong problems. You said child, it could be uh, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, definitely intimacy issues, both men and women. Uh, problems holding down a job, mental problems, probably more depression. I would assume. Substance abuse, uh, you know, just across across the board, and I think, you know, one of the the the, the most heartbreaking issues that I see are, are young people um, coming in, and they really are struggling with. I feel responsible for what happened. They feel responsible for not saying no or not telling sooner, or they feel responsible for the devastation that the disclosure, you know, has caused in the family. Um, they they feel shame, just a deep seated shame, which is actually much different than guilt. It's it's, it's more to the core of, of who I am. Think about so, that for a second. Think about the pressure. A child would be under and even going into a young adulthood and even maybe you know going into being adult when they finally come forward and tell their story they're worried about the family disintegrating about maybe hurting the actual predator themselves uh, they're concerned about almost everything but themselves aren't they they are and if I could just tell you a brief story Please. about Exactly that. I was seeing a 16-year-old girl that the allegation was that she was being abused by her biological father and, and that it had gone on for a couple of years. Her family, with the exception of her mother, um, just totally abandoned her, said, we don't believe you. If it were true, you would have said something sooner. And so she gets in therapy with me, and, and, and I asked her, I said, I'm going to ask you what I think everybody is basing their, their, you know, their position on. What took you so long? They're saying if this was true, you would have said something a long time ago. So what took you so long? And, and I'll never forget. She, she just kind of thought about it for a second. And she said, well, I couldn't figure out when the perfect time to completely destroy my mom wow. would be. I couldn't figure out the time when to completely destroy my mother would be. And, and that just, boy, that just... That struck me right there because, it, you know, you said it best a minute ago. There's so much on the line for these young people to come forward. And the older they are, the more that they're aware of this devastating impact it's going to have. My God, the moment they speak up, whatever support network they had is normally is going to be destroyed probably. Probably, you know, on this issue, uh, there's I don't know of any other issue that splits communities and families almost evenly, you know, 50-50. But everywhere we go, uh, you know, you'll have half the community saying, no, 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 this can't be true. And about the other half saying, oh, yeah, this probably did happen. And, you know, young people know that. The predator, the, the pedophile, therapy for them. Is there any way of rehabilitation? I mean... Or are these guys just hardwired this way? That's the way it's going to be unless you chemically castrate them or physically castrate them. Even then, I don't think it always works. Right. Yeah, that, that was there was a, a bit of a concerted effort many years ago on that issue. Um, to answer the first question, does is can you do anything with these offenders? If you ask, is there a cure? 
I would say, no, I don't believe there is. If you ask, can this be, behavior be managed in a safe uh, way? I would say, yeah, I believe we can. And the research on a sex offender treatment, kind of a broad category, suggests that a 15, 13 to 15% recidivism rate or reoffense rate. Now, comparing those offenders that are treated to offenders who are not treated, Definitely treatment for sex offenders is the way to go, because unless you're going to incarcerate them forever and not let them out, then you want to make sure that there's a good containment model, a good relapse prevention model going on in, in your community. How long does, does this tend to go on? I mean, we're looking, I'll use Jerry Sandusky as an example. People are trying to say in some cases, well, this just began in middle age, and, and I don't buy that. I don't think you all of a sudden just find an attraction for children when you're 45. Right. Is, is, is this something that begins a puberty for them, and they start molesting and grooming even then? Yeah, the, the research that I mentioned earlier, the demographics, you know, caught up typically in their middle 30s, uh, you know, when they first have contact with law enforcement, and those same offenders tell us that they started around 15 or 16. Yeah, they're in that, yeah, right around that age group that I figured they were getting in touch with their sexuality. They had enough confidence and or manipulation type strength to, uh, to bring it on, you know, to, to go after uh, maybe more, you know, little boys in their community. Yeah, and you know, that, that population, the, the juvenile offender has really, really grown. Um, some some researchers put that at as much as half of you know the perpetrators um, that we experience today. I can tell you that uh, I'm I'm located in Texas and we've seen a, a tremendous increase in the uh, the adolescent juvenile sex offender population. Megan's law is it uh, a hindrance and hysteria? Is it is it good? Is it a good tool? Uh, I brought this up to you when we talked the other day. Um, if you go online, type in the Megan's Law, you can go pretty much in any area of the United States, and you can find registered sexual offenders in your neighborhood. I've got about 15 in my neighborhood. Thank you for putting them there. What is, does it do any good? Because if you read what they've been charged for, a lot of times it's not enough information or it's information that can leave it open-ended. It might say, sexual assault among a minor. Well, that could be a 19-year-old boy who engaged in what the girl would have considered then consensual sex at 15, but the law said it's an assault. Right. So how do you view Megan's law uh, as a tool to help parents and society? Well, I think, you know, just as with anything else, there are strengths and weaknesses uh, to, you know, laws such as Megan's Law or the Adam Walsh Act. Now, well, first, I think we have to always remind ourselves those laws come on the heels of horrific acts and, and unimaginable trauma to the families and the communities that, that endured that. Uh, so the effort is, is appropriate. There are, however, some unintended consequences. Uh, so registration, for example. Uh, is it good to know if your neighbor is a registered sex offender? Absolutely. However, if that's all your protection plan consists of, then you're leaving your children wide open. First of all, that offender probably... Um, unless he's your neighbor, friend of yours, trusted, you know, adult in your child's life, probably poses um, a greater, a much greater small risk to to your children. Remember who the offenders are. 
there are family members that are friends of our family. And when offenders act out and they get caught for the first time, they typically have no criminal history whatsoever. Troy, real quick, because we're going to roll in after we finish this one last statement from you, and we're going to roll into that, into that movie spot to end the show. Tell us in like 30 seconds what parents can do, what we can watch for to protect our kids. All right, here you go. Talk to your kids. Make sure that you're paying attention. If you've got a grown-up in a child's life whose attention and, and activities with that child is just, you know, just beyond what should be normal, pay attention to that. Be the child. Be that person for that child who is listening and spending time with the child. I'm telling you, that is where uh, offenders exploit and, and garner that child's favor. It's, it's through time and attention. And then we have to make sure that we're modeling assertiveness. We, it's, we have to have kids and their standards perfectly okay to say no to grown-ups. Excellent. Troy, please tell us where we can get your book again. Mommy, please read this. Yeah, TroyTimmons.com or Amazon.com. Either of those would be great. Troy, I appreciate it. You've been listening to Life Unedited. Troy, I'll call you again probably in the future to get your take on some of the court cases. Is that all right? It's, it's very fine. And, John, thanks so much oh, for thank taking you, on this subject. I appreciate it. We're going to roll in now into this segment from the movie Where the Heart Is. This will be Natalie Portman and Ashley Judd having a discussion. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Life Unedited. I'll be back next week. When I went inside... I heard a noise coming from the back of the apartment from my bedroom. And I set down the baby and I ran to see. There was something against the door. I had to push. And it was Braley. She was crumpled on the floor, covering her eyes. And Roger had Brownie on the bed. And he had And I flew at him. I wanted to kill him, and I would have. I hit him twice, and that's all I remember. You know, he went after little Fraley first, and she threw up on him. And that's when Brownie came in. How did he find me, Nobly? How did a man like that find my kids? How do you know he could do such a thing to us? He had to be looking. He was looking for women like me who were alone with children and women who were stupid. And they saw through him. They could tell he was evil. And all I thought would be like, Oh, God. What am I going to tell my babies? What am I going to say to Brandy and Praline when they ask me why this happened to them?